This episode of the This Week in XR podcast is brought to you by our friends at Zapper. Zapper's XR Pioneers Conference is back on October 11th for its third year. And once again, you can learn how to take your business from ordinary to extraordinary using immersive technologies. Zapper's free user conference brings together thousands of designers, developers, marketers, and strategists to take their work to the next level. They have a great conference lineup, including a This Week in XR special, where myself and Roni will be hosting a one-off panel featuring former head of XR at Disney, John Snotty, and Zapper CEO, Casper Thykier. We'll be covering the past, present, and future of the wonderful world of XR. Through real-world examples, we'll share how people are using XR to change the way they communicate across their marketing, packaging, learning, training, and development to drive better results. Discover how to take advantage of the XR tools of the future and propel your business in a new era of growth and engagement. Carving out just a little time in your day to tune in live will give you access to exclusive sessions, industry deep dives, workshops, and technical demonstrations, giving you access to some of the biggest names and brightest minds in the industry. Save your spot now for October 11th and register at zapper.com backslash xr-pioneer. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to This Week in XR with Roni Abovitz, myself, Ted Shulowitz, and missing today is our the third part of our trio, Charlie Fink, who is our uh, illustrious leader and uh, um partner in crime. He is uh, dealing with some personal stuff today. So uh, life uh, continues to sometimes intrude on our uh, our weekly jaunts, uh, Roni. But, uh, you know, life's journey is such that it that it forces this when we've been doing this for years now. <laughs> so uh, sometimes one of us has to miss one. First of all, uh, Charlie, uh, we miss you and Ted and I are going to go uh, full white album. Uh, for those of you who for don't uh, you know, know what that means, it's yeah. It's when George Martin uh, somehow was, they kind of kept kicked him out, I guess, and took over Abbey Road and just went nuts. So that's what Ted and I are doing today. Yeah. Uh, so we have a, a really interesting guest today, in addition to some interesting news. Um, so Curtis Hickman will be our guest today. Uh, those that have been tracking VR, location-based entertainment, for years would know The Void. Uh, we had Kent Brent Schneider on a few weeks ago, uh, who is his, also his partner in crime. So uh, Kent, uh, Curtis was the uh, co-founder of The Void, and really a lot of the uh, creative and, and technological and spiritual center of that, to try and bring that to the fore. He's got a, uh, a new book that he'll uh, talk about. Um, and uh, we'll learn a little bit about that in uh, about 15 minutes or so. So uh, shall we dive right into today's news and do our best to, to channel our, our inner Charlie? Let's do it. Let's okay, do it. So uh, as, as many of you know, Charlie writes a, a weekly article around XR and also around, XR, uh, around AI now um, for Forbes, uh, and that's what we use as the, the basis of our discussion points. So uh, we'll be going off uh, Charlie's uh, This Week in XR um, Forbes article for this week that you can read. Uh, the first thing I thought we would dive into before we dive into the various software layers and applications is there's some interesting kind of hardware rumor news out there uh, that would be great to get your opinion on, Roni. So there's a couple things floating around. The first is that Nintendo is rumored to be now working with Google on a VR headset, and uh, it has been documented and public that... Uh, um, that there's, you know, that Nintendo has been sort of looking at this space for, for quite some time, right? Um, I'd be curious if, uh, if our friends at Qualcomm are involved in this because, uh, they seem to, you know, from a chipset standpoint, uh, have a touch point in really everybody except Apple's, uh, aspirations and, and of course, Magic Leap's aspirations, uh, in this world. So that's, we don't know anything about that yet, but, uh, any thoughts about, uh, where Nintendo goes? This goes, of course, all the way back to uh, one of the earliest attempts, um, incredibly failed, but sort of often uh, talked about culturally uh, um, device called the Virtual Boy, which uh, you and I have had our heads in at one point in time and instantly became nauseous. But it was certainly an early experiment. Uh, they're collector's items. You can pick them up on eBay. Um, so any thoughts on that, on where that's going? I, I think it's interesting. First of all, um, I think the rumors with Google, I'll, I'll give you the pros and cons. Clearly, Google has built up a significant hardware team. They have amazing cloud and, and AI capabilities. So I think that's there's some possible relevance there. 
But Google has not really been amazing at gaming, right? Stadia and things like that. And they, they notoriously start things and kill them off. Um, so that, that would be a little bit weird. Um, and Nintendo, if you look at what's been very successful to them, it's been like tech slightly behind the curve. Yeah. You know, like the Switch is not the most sophisticated graphics, but it's just really sweetly done. Yeah, right? it's, it's well defined this... and, it, and it works really well for their market and their marketplace and their user, right? And, yeah. and it feels great. It works great. And I'm thinking like, I can imagine in 2035, you can make a Nintendo Switch XR because all the problems are solved. All the components are low cost. And now you can pick and choose and make something like you do with the Switch, which wasn't an engineering physics, neurologic, you know, neuroscience problem. Right. Well, not a thermodynamics problem like XR still is today. Um, but you do, it's like a design problem. And I think it's interesting to see, will, will Nintendo really want to be on the cutting edge and invest the billions to sort of keep up with like what Apple's going to do and what Meta's doing? Because, um, and, and to some extent, what Magic Leap is still doing, right? It's like an incredibly costly thing to move up the curve to solve all the remaining issues. And as they get smaller and smaller, unfortunately, get more expensive. Mm -hmm. Like those last little mile nitty gritty things to get the thing down to like you know 80 grams but you know 100 degree field of view and 6k per eye and and all these things been a battery that lasts all day and all that stuff so i just wonder like it would be amazing if nintendo did something and uh you know one of my friends um at universal did this amazing ar experience uh the universal parks with nintendo yes right uh right. with mario kart so they, they had some very positive feedback so if you look at that AR experience, it's like one of the best location-based theme park AR experiences. So are they taking a cue from that? My understanding is Apple bought that company, yeah, which is kind of interesting, too. They did. So, that, was a, that was a small company called Miro. We were now, you and I were both friends with those young startup kids from uh, USC, Ben and Matt. And uh, you know, it's interesting to see their trajectory, right? Where that so what, what I think is possible, Charlie, is could they be exploring prototyping together now that Apple snatched away what they were using, right? That that could be what's happening. Your Freudian slip happened again because it probably says Charlie underneath me, which is sorry, awesome. sorry. <laughs> yep, no, it says sorry, Mr. Ted. Well, I'm you're the Charlie for the day. That's you right. Know. I think it's we are all Charlie. We need like we are all Charlie. It happened again. It's it's very it's very interesting. Um, yeah, so I, I I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I think you know if you if you look at it through a lens of who other than Apple really focuses on fit and finish really, really well? It could be argued that Nintendo might be in a close second place, right? Um, in terms of the devices they built over the years, with some misses, but, but very often, you know, like, you know, here, this is one from my past that, of course, uh, everybody would know, anybody that happens to be watching YouTube. Yeah. Uh, most people are listening to the podcast, but I'm, I'm holding. Want to describe what you're here. holding? There you go, the Game That's Boy. A Game Boy, uh, and you know it was for its time extraordinarily well designed and extraordinarily well thought out with where the buttons were and how it worked. And um, I, I think you know you might be right. Like it, it seems that these devices are indeed the holy grail for giant tech companies, right? And giant tech companies, other than really Apple, don't really understand that last level of fit, finish, and polish. Uh, so maybe we keep a close eye on a Nintendo-Google partnership uh, because there's a lot of capital that they can work there, uh, sort of in the in the level that you often talk about as the needed level of capital to get to the other side of the equation here. Um, so that's an interesting one. And maybe uh, it's for theme parks. You know, yeah, maybe what they're maybe. doing is, how you know, because if Apple bought the company that was sourcing the kind of bigger hardware that was like geared into these Mario Kart things, maybe what they need is like, a partner for the theme park and that would make more sense to me because that's bigger heavier it's not consumer it's like theme park enterprise and i could see them doing that for a number of years like my gut is the sweet spot for nintendo in consumer to have that switch like feel and cost is probably the 2030s yeah. i know a lot of fans would might want it a lot earlier unless they've come up with something very clever and somehow they've overcome a lot of the visual issues that vr still has Right. Well, and you're talking about that, again, that arc from the arcade model, the theme park model, the out-of-the-home model, and then moving that and commercializing that and getting into the home model, which is the PlayStation, uh, Nintendo, uh, the Wii, the Switch, Wii, Atari, you know, it's a, that whole arc from getting something that used to have to be in a dedicated space into your home. So we'll see. Um, on the other side of that same equation, uh, the other big hardware news or hardware sort of rumor dynamic is that Meta, our friends at Meta that build the Quest 
Quest 2, the Quest Pro, are now uh, working with LG, a major components manufacturer, right, that builds OLED screens. And we know this um, quite well from their consumer um, display division. Um, they are working potentially on something that we'll just call a new Quest Pro, although very doubtful that Meta will go down that nomenclature again, um, supposedly developing something that will be at a competitive level with what Apple is doing with the Vision Pro device. Super high-res displays, ultra, ultra good, many, many cameras. Um, the, the rumor is that it's going to be priced around $2,000 and it will use these LG displays. Thoughts and comments on that? Yeah, no, so Ted, I think it's, it, it makes sense. Uh, you know, we don't know 100% if it's true, but the reason why it makes sense is it either Samsung, LG, or Sony Mm -hmm. are all capable of making like, you know, 4K and even beyond very precise OLEDs. Right. And the Sony uh, OLEDs are in the Apple device, right? So so if Sony's with Apple, then you're either with Samsung or with LG and maybe Samsung is with someone else. Maybe right. they're with Google. You know, you never know, right? So, but LG is a very, a very high quality maker of like, you know, the differences between LG, Samsung and Sony uh, to a lot of users, you'll be very finessed, right? They'll They'll hit the same marks. Uh, you know, they're they're sort of working in the same area and, and you know, the proprietary differences, maybe this one has a tiny edge in blacks or something, but like, it makes sense that Meta is trying to basically keep up uh, with what Apple, Apple did a big level up in VR over, over where Meta was. So Meta has to keep up. Yeah. It's, um, it's also interesting to me that the rumor of this will be a high priced headset, $2,000, maybe, maybe higher headset. It seems like Apple can kind of get away with that dynamic where their customer base are, where their developer base are. And the, the, the runway, the leeway that people will give Apple, including you and me, um, to buy a device at that, that price point. I, I have a instinctual, um, feeling that meta is it's Meta's sweet spot or success point is actually the complete other way is that defining that the delta between a two or three hundred dollar headset and a three thousand to four thousand dollar headset isn't as tremendous as people think certainly you know you're going to get ultra precise fidelity in the thousands of dollars but the level of fidelity we can create now which we've seen with a quest 2 and what we're seeing upcoming with a quest 3 and even with the slight misses of a quest pro the quality of those visuals is pretty damn good now for its price point. So the question is, should they be, be competing in the ultra expensive arena or should they be trying to like lower that Delta even more with say a four or 500, $600 headset that is almost as good as a $3,000 headset and then really focus on all the software and applications and all the things that they no, seem to be doing more right than wrong. No, Ted, I, I think you are, you're nailing it. And I, I look, they have their own reason, but I'll give you, I'll give you my perspective, right? I, I think it may be a mistake on Meta's part. Yeah. I think they have a, a fan base and a core customer that's in the low hundreds of dollars. Mm -hmm. That's why people love them. They're just cheap. You know, they're super cheap uh, VR, like the like the Google Cardboard and these things you get for 19 bucks. They're just garbage, right? But at 199 299 399 you get something workable from, from Meta, from, you know, Oculus Meta. And basically that's what, that's what they are in the market. They're that low first entry point in VR that's accessible to school kids or college hackers and stuff. And I think they have a lot of love in that brand and price point. Yeah, Apple is premium. Apple is like, you know, multi-thousand dollars. And Apple's not catering to that, like, you know, a couple hundred dollar price. So Meta trying to escalate up is like being a company that makes like mopeds and scooters and suddenly trying to sell like a high-end Audi. It's, you know, they don't have the brand or the credibility to do that. Right. Apple has like decades of of, of building it up, yeah. right? So I, so there's there's an interesting like brand pricing strategy question, um, and I think you know if you look at Meta strategy, it's like spray things everywhere in all directions with a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, I, but but I think if they, if you really think about who their core customer is, you yeah. know I know lots of people who love Meta because it's two ninety nine. You're like, what else can I get for two ninety nine for three ninety? If they just stay there and play that game, eventually you'll have something quite nice, maybe at the end of this decade, and let Apple be the $3,000 prosumer. I mean, basically, like, Apple magically paying thousands of dollars. It's weird for me, for Meta to want to suddenly go there when they kind of own the, that lower end. Um, that lower end, high volume, mass scale, first in accessibility seems to be an, an, what their brand means to people. 
right? So it's kind of weird, like not knowing who you are or what you are. And it takes time, but as a company, they've been they they kind of know what they are. They're they're basically low friction accessibility to billions of people. And going into thousands of dollars is completely not not them, right? Right. And you would think they would have maybe learned a little bit of their lesson from the release of the Quest Pro, which didn't work at what was it, twelve hundred, thirteen hundred? I think they lowered the price down to sub a thousand. It still didn't work because again, there wasn't enough of a delta between the Quest Two, which is a quite good device at sub four hundred dollars. Uh, yes, you got color pass through on uh, the Quest Pro, but it wasn't fantastic. The cameras were integrated wrong. The controllers seemed a little nicer ergonomically, but they weren't any real significant advancement uh, on on the much lower cost device. So I think they're the question is, are they learning that lesson? And it, if this rumor is correct, they're not learning that lesson. They still so, want so, to go after the high end. So Ted, here's the vagaries of XR design. You and I know a lot about that. I've, yeah, I've lived yeah. it for for a long time. One of the vagaries is that the physics of what the body wants at this point in time is not low cost. Right. Apple recognized that. Uh, the Magic Leap team knows that. And that's why there's a cost to building something that has like a certain level of quality. Uh, if, if you want like the battery, the CPU, the sensors, all of that at a certain level of quality, certain level of resolution, just, you know, just the display Apple's using is like incredibly costly. And then to power it and and... If you follow that decision, all everything else certainly, you know, to 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 house that thing and to drive the CPU, GPU to get the frame rate, everything else, all of a sudden, like all the costs go up. Yeah. So I think Meta might have Apple Envy, which is like we're not I happy. Think that's that's being, a very good way to describe it. Apple Envy. We're not happy good. being two hundred ninety nine dollars, like you know, sub two K. Apple's going to be four K then six K. Whoa, like we can't be like the lower res, low fi thing. So, but but the hi-fi thing costs a lot of money. Yeah. So you know, ultimately, uh, Meta for for all that they've done to push virtual reality and the beginnings of mixed reality into the mainstream, I think psychologically they don't want to be the Dell computers of this business. They don't want to be the gateway of this business. They want to be the Apple of this business. But ultimately, even today, when you configure an Apple laptop for your use and put the right amount of RAM in and the right around right amount of, of storage. Four grand. In, well, Four yeah, twenty five hundred to three thousand, you know, for yes. just a, a, a really nice laptop versus you can go buy a PC laptop uh for sort of the same specs, but not the same sexiness and certainly not an M2 chip in it, a a, a lesser valued Intel chip for like six hundred bucks, right? So it's kind of the same metaphor. Look, meta, maybe they're the Acer. You know, maybe they're the, but, but, but you know what, they're, they're, those kind of computing platforms provide a lot of people around the world with access to computing. Yeah, and a lot more scale, a lot is, more ubiquity, right? There's a lot more scale, a lot more ubiquity. And like what Apple plays is like, you know, ultra premium. It's like buying a Range Rover or, you know, yeah. a high end uh, Audi or Ferrari or something. It's like, it's like a different thing. Right. Agreed. Um, so that's so that's the hardware news for this week, which I think is is valuable and good. Um, now let's dive into the other side of the equation. There's a number of stories. This is drifting a little bit into the AI side of our XR uh, discussion, but a really interesting discussion around copyright now with AR creations, AR artistry, AR artist um, deliverables, right? Creations. Uh, and the 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 news that has come out this week, which is this is not the end of this story by any stretch of the imagination is the U.S. Copyright Office has ruled that a uh, an art piece called Theater de Opera Spatial uh, was created with um, a generative AI tool called Midjourney is not eligible uh, for copyright protection. If you just looked at that image, which won a uh, an award at, at, at the Colorado State Fair, so arguably it didn't win a MoMA award, it won something at the Colorado State Fair, but it's still a recognized organization, right, that people voted on this artwork, was created with AI tools and AI prompts. Uh, the, the picture is very beautiful, kind of Renaissance-looking um, sort of thing, and um, the question is, should it be and can it be copyrighted when the artist said he, um, just looking at the information here, I think um, he had 600 plus prompts to create it and multiple work and tweaking and redesign and cleanup in Photoshop. So there's a human hand and a human touch in it. Um, this is a really interesting one as to where does uh, a copyrighted work fall when you're using some sort of technological use case to bring it to life. And we know that in art, music, cinema, gaming, we use technological advancements and technological tools 
to bring things to life all the time. So why is this any different, right? Um, it's a really interesting one. First of all, I, I have pretty strong opinions. I think this this one is going to get challenging. We'll see many more cases. But first of all, there's been a lot of games, a lot of movies already made with computing and with AI that are copyrighted. Mm-hmm. There, there's some really great movies that have things like Massive, which drives the crowds and the tools to automate animation. And uh, most Pixar movies like are using computation 3D models and texture map and using computing for ray tracing. So to, to basically say that a human times computer thing can't be copyrighted, first of all, is is incorrect because for decades, they are copyrighted. Right. Human and computer stuff is copyrighted. Um, the question is, like, does the copyright office want to come up with some ratio? Like, the human must do 10.9% of the work. And and I think somebody will fight this out in court. It'll probably go to the Supreme Court, which is like, yeah. what is the ratio? But that becomes very dangerous because a lot of video games are copyrighted. But all you did is you wrote code and then something happened. So that, you know, the computer and you did something together. Therefore, you can't have the copyright. Um, I, I I think there's an extreme view, which is, if you do nothing at all, like you just have like maybe the most like one millionth of a percent input and the AI does everything, do you, the human, deserve the copyright? But if you're an active participant with the computer and with an AI system mm-hmm. and the, you and that system create something, we've been granting copyrights to that form of cooperation for a very long time. Right. So why are they picking on this? Is it the du jour? Um, and, uh, lots of... The other thing, Ted, is that what's in um, some of these systems, this is the really tricky thing, um, all of the predicate art that feeds these large models, what, was there copyright rights to use that in in the creation of whatever happened here? Right. Was it all public domain? Was it someone else's art? But what's even weirder is like what millionth of a percent of influence did this piece have on that piece to create that new thing? Yeah, it's, so it's all very weird. I, I think uh, our friend Curtis might oh. be in the waiting room now. This is much better Charlie's domain than mine, but I'm going to admit this this entity that I see into the waiting room and see if that is Curtis. Oh. Um, we'll continue our discussion because we have a few more things, but we'll let him sort of join us if that is indeed Curtis. We'll admit we'll to find Curtis. Out. Let's see if it's Curtis. And we'll see if he shows up. Um, but let's, uh, let's continue our discussion. I think that might be him, but we'll find out. It is him. Hey, Curtis, how are you? Hey, I'm all right. Sorry, the uh, the Wi-Fi in the hotel has gone down, so I'm on my phone today. Oh, that's all right. Uh, you you sound okay, a little thin, but you sound fine, and you look fine in that in that strange uh, dynamic of looking up yeah. at your phone. But most people listen to the podcast and don't watch the podcast, even though there is a video feed of the podcast. So thanks for okay. joining us. We're we've got another like uh, I don't know five, seven minutes of discussion of the news, which we're in the midst of. So feel free to listen in for a couple minutes and and offer your two cents as you want, and then we'll dive into your world. Uh, Great. So uh, uh, Charlie couldn't be here today, as you probably know. So Roni and I are are, are helming the ship today. Uh, we were just talking about um, this AI copyright moment that you have probably read about in the news from that piece of art that won an award at a, at a state fair. Uh, and Roni had some thoughts about that. And really, Roni, what I will... What I will add to that discussion is you want to talk about the craziest, most difficult sliding scale of where do we define when a piece of technology um, is overtaking the artistic pursuit and therefore it does not deserve to be copyrighted versus how many steps, how many clicks, how many brain to ask the computer, the, the large language model to do this then deserves to be copyrighted from the artistic standpoint. The best sort of way I could add a little touch point to this is maybe one of the most famous comments in all Supreme Court um, um, offerings or, or, or discussion points or, or notes was the I know it when I see it comment, right? Which related to pornography years ago uh, when the Chief Justice says, how do you define it? I know it when I see it. So the question is, when you're looking at a piece of art, and Curtis, you're an artist by trade and by nature, and you use technology constantly to deliver your work, right, and your thoughts, um, where is that I know it when I see it line uh, when it comes to using uh, various forms of artificial intelligence, which we're just at the beginnings of? Think about where we might be 20 years from now with the sophistication of what we can create with a human and artificial intelligence or no human involvement at all 
and how do we how do we navigate that? So, I, Char, or, um, Roni, I think you're right. It is uh, very much going to live in the dynamic of the Supreme Court and will be unbelievably controversial forever. Um, but so- let me throw one more add on, uh, Ted, for for Curtis to think about. There's also the bigger question of like, and 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 I'm on on the squishier side of this. I think AIs are they are somewhat sentient. Uh, sentience having a graduated scale. And as they get more and more sophisticated, they will become entities. Do they have rights? Uh, independent of people. Yeah. You know, an AI may create some of the greatest works of art, music, and film, and things we don't even have words for yet in the next century. Does it have rights? Yeah. Um, like, are we, I mean, it's going to get very strange. Like, we attribute rights mostly to people and we treat animals horribly. Like, do we start to treat other entities as having rights, especially as they gain sort of awareness and maybe sentience and intelligence that surpasses us? So what would we be telling them? You have no rights, but yet you may be thousands of times more intelligent. Go out 10, 20 years. It, it seems super likely that we're passed by every form of AI. Right. We are not We are not the top of the mountain anymore. Curtis, I'll give you the option to opt in if you want. We'll go off script a little bit. We're really here in about five minutes or so to talk about you and your work and your art. But if you have any thoughts about this, we always love to hear from our guests on these things, too. Uh, you know, my, uh, my my thoughts are kind of... I've been trying to understand AI, AI art especially. Uh, you know, I uh, about six months ago, I... You know, I, I upped my graphics card and, and got uh, deep into stable diffusion and um, wanted to see uh, how, like, what could I do? How could I take my imagination and make it a reality using this tool? And I uh, started putting a book together. of uh, It's a compilation of haiku and uh, this art. Mm. Um, and the, the thought was I'd write the haiku and then I would try and make an image that would go along with the imagery that I was trying to get that haiku to convey. And um, sometimes I'd be, I'd be able to craft the perfect prompt and get a decent image that it would only take a few hours of Photoshop to, it, it was a fine piece of art, but it wasn't exactly what I needed. And so it took, you know, a lot of compositing and Photoshopping to get it where I needed it to go. Uh, and, uh, other times I'd have to go into like 3ds max and build an entire right. scene and then use that to feed the engine and, and, and in order for it to get anywhere close to what I needed. Um, and, uh, uh, because I'm trying to, you know, I'm telling this computer, I'm telling this AI system, Hey, this is, uh, this is what's in my head. This is what I want. And, and giving as much information as I can in order to get there. Uh, and to me, it's that partnership that is, I mean, that's, those are the efforts that I put into it, you know, and, 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 it, and it required a lot of energy and a lot of effort and a lot of creativity to, to yeah. do all those things. And Well, I think you're making the I, argument that this artist made is that this is not just a computer taking over my brain. It is a synthesis of my brain and my skill with computer technology of the day, which is, you know, many generations we've used various technologies. I mean, you could argue cinema as an art form is a technological helper to allow things to come off the physical stage, which we'll get to talk about, you know, your work in a minute. So yeah, I think you're going to struggle with this. Any artist is going to struggle. How do I own what I touch if I choose to plug it into a compute technology-based system? It's It's a much longer discussion, right? So fascinating. Yeah, and it definitely gets complicated. I totally understand that. And it's, you know, uh, but that, that's just been my view of it so far with, with the practice I've gone into. And as far as AI rights and things in the future, man, I, to be honest, I kind of, I step back to that. I'm going to cross that bridge when we come to it. Come uh, to it. And, well, we're, and, I think we're, we're all going to cross that. that bridge many times in the next. Yeah. Time. Uh, okay. So two more news stories and then we're going to get to you in earnest. Uh, the other sort of things that matter right now is there's another, there's another GPT in town from our friends at the fruit company in Cupertino uh, called Ajax of all things, which is kind of interesting. Uh, Apple has a AI system that they call Ajax. It's already reported to be better and more refined. Better is a, is a large sort of 
you know, term, how do you define that, than uh, what uh, the, the traditional now chat GPT can do. Uh, Apple is spending millions of dollars a day training this language model. It has a huge amount of words in it in the many, many billions. Um, and so it's Apple's most advanced large language model known internally as Ajax GPT. It's been trained on 200 billion parameters, apparently more powerful than OpenAI's uh, GPT 3.5. Um, wow. This is some reports from Bloomberg. Uh, and the team at Siri is apparently involved in it in some fashion, um, which I would say Siri is maybe one of the least Apple-like uh, effects of what Apple has done in terms of its refinement and its our, our struggles with Siri in, in many ways. Uh, but maybe there's a minute or two you guys, both uh, Roni and Curtis, want to talk about where does Apple fit into the AI world now that uh, we have some rumors that that's going to be something. Curtis, you want to go? Uh, yeah, I mean, ever since uh, you, know, you use ChatGPT the first time, then you go, "Oh, I wish Siri was like this." You know, <laughs> like, uh, why isn't it? Why, why, you know? Uh, and I've just kind of been wishing for more, uh, for more of that ever since. You know, be able to just talk to my my HomePod speaker and uh, and command it in a very natural way and and get better answers back and all that. So. Uh, it's like a natural direction for them to go. There's a lot that they'll be able to be, be able to do with that. Um, I mean, obviously, there's still a lot of complications uh, with uh, with the data sets used for that stuff too. So, I mean, yeah, you know, dipping your toe into that water can get you into get you into trouble pretty quick as well. Uh, so, I'll, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. But I mean, as a technology path, I mean, it's where they they needed to be going. Yeah. Roni, any thoughts on where Apple's going to head with this? Yeah, I mean the. They haven't been the strongest in that. Um, they clearly have enough capital to buy every AI startup. Um, they could buy Shutterstock and Adobe and all of a sudden be in the game, you know. So it's going to be interesting. Like the dabbling internally is one thing, but I wonder if they want to get serious and actually take on Microsoft. Do they need to roll up some teams, which is not a normal Apple thing to do, um, you know, which would be tens of billions of dollars of acquisitions, or are they just going to try to home grow it all? Um, but there's no doubt they have to be in it. Like anyone in computing knows, basically computing and AI are going to be interchangeable. Like if you do computing, you have some kind of, it, AI will become a meaningless statement because everything will be intelligent in all software and all hardware. So you have to be in it. And that's like what form and what sub genre of it. But uh, AI will be like saying media or computer. Yeah, exactly. It almost is like that for me right now. Like there's no nothing, like AI means anything to do with computing. If you have any idea what you're talking about, it's all AI. Exactly. Right exactly right. Because people are, oh, AI is here. It's like, no, guys, AI's been here for a long time. You just got so used to it. You didn't realize what it was. Yeah. And now the hardware companies like NVIDIA are capitalizing mightily on the trajectory of this. And that is going to continue to grow. And it is going to be a part of our universe uh, in ways that we haven't even begun to explore yet. So uh, I think that's a good stopping point on AI. There is one more story that actually is going to be very close to home, Curtis, uh, to you, and I think will dovetail and lead in our discussion around your arc and your work, is that this week uh, is the Venice uh, Film Festival, and they uh, have an immersive area at the Venice Film Festival. I've been to it a number of times. I wasn't able to go this year, so I'm kind of getting reports from my friends and stuff. Um, and our friends, Felix and Paul, who I know you, you know well and Roni knows well, um, uh, have a, um, a premiere of something they did with the Jim Henson studio uh, called The Seven Ravens, which I got a, an early kind of under NDA peak of uh, mixed reality storytelling where you're using physical prop of a book and things come off the page and it's kind of this lovely sort of experience. Uh, so they premiered it at the Venice Film Festival. There's also a number of other um, uh, of other really interesting pieces at this immersive art festival. Uh, and I think maybe the most important part, rather than you can read the news stories if you're interested in this across some of the things that are coming out and the awards that are being won. Uh, but I think there are two main threads that I would like to talk to both you and Roni about is the concept of what we refer to as festival virtual reality, festival immersive um, is, is indeed sort of a mainstay of, of multiple festivals now, right? Uh, but it has never really sort of pushed beyond its festival use. Like people that can go to that festival and be a part of it and be a part of that community can enjoy some really lovely experiences, but it has never really crossed a threshold into something that has deep commercial viability like traditional cinema or traditional, you know, 
things that would premiere at a film festival and then end up on, on your streaming service, right? In a main mass delivered use case, which is, I think, a struggle for location-based entertainment across the sector. And a festival like Venice and um, Sundance, which leaned into New Frontiers for a long time and now has kind of pulled back from that and a number of other festivals. Um, I think that's an interesting thing for us to talk about uh, for a couple of minutes and then lead into your work and, and your goals and, and where you sit right now. So, um, you know, I think we all that get to live this day to day, get a lot of joy and a lot of value out of learning what the artists are doing, pushing the artistic edge of virtual reality. Uh, it just hasn't seemed to manage to really get to the commercial side, like the, the linkage across is really difficult. And is that a hardware problem? Is it a scale problem? Is it a throughput problem? All of the above, right? Hey, can, I, can, I, can I link a thread between what you just said and, and Curtis? And first of all, Curtis, I, I think I might have met you at Disney in Anaheim. That's correct, yeah. Yes, we were, we were both there showing stuff. I guess we could talk. We were both showing stuff to the board of Disney. And that, that by the way, that has a lot to do with what you just said, Ted, because uh, I think the experiential location-based XR is actually amazing if you're in a highly curated space and you have the means to pull in continuous audience. So I, I think Disney, as an example, has such a pull anyway that if you put an LBX there, it's going to it's going to have all this draw and all these people. Mm. Um, I think when it's not fully incorporated and you're more standalone, you have to create a brand independent of of building a good experience. Like I saw the stuff Curtis did, and it was like complete magic, right? Like, and you're a magician. I think we talked about that. And and you know, we, my company is called Magic Leap. So I was like, the whole idea that you were seeing magic in this form of computing was amazing. And I guess we'd love to hear that. Um, first of all, the stuff you did, maybe talk to the audience about it, because not very few people really experienced it. You did all these crazy tricks, which were, you know, David Copperfield Houdini level, which is a shame that they need they need to be resurrected somewhere somehow uh, in in the next wave of XR. Uh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, I remember that conversation we had really well. We were in the, the Grand uh, Californian in the lobby there, and, and we, we sat down and had a chat. I, I'll never forget it. It was great. Um, and magic has been a huge part of the void uh, since the very beginning, uh, just kind of playing off the concept that uh, really VR is its own kind of magic. You're trying to create the illusion of an alternate reality that you're in. And uh, just understanding that, it's like, okay, well, then what else can you do? And how else, how else can you play into that sort of concept and uh, use Angel magic techniques to make those things not only seem more real, but make the impossible things that are part of that seem real. So what we should do, uh, Curtis, and, before you what we should yeah. do before you keep going is we often do this. We go to third base before we actually get to uh, get up to bat. So um, yeah, okay. I, I did a little intro of you, very basic. Um, so, but because you are very much a, a poly, right? You touch many, many things in many ways. I think it's important for our listeners to hear do a do a brief intro of what you do, why you do it, some of the work you've done, and then go ahead and, and move into some of the thesis around this so that we have a, a grounding, so we have a base point. Oh, it makes sense. Yeah, now, totally. we're, now we're starting yeah, the interview, so I'm, I'm, I'm introducing you officially now. Oh, fair, fair enough. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm the Chief Creative Officer of The Void. Uh, I'm still the Chief Creative Officer of The Void, um, which I'm, I'm proud to say is uh, they're fighting to... to to keep going. Yeah, it's gone through multiple uh, that, Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. And for those that don't know, The Void was an immersive uh, VR company. Um, we were uh, the first uh, commercial, truly immersive VR company. Um, we, we sold our first tickets back in 2015 um, and uh, uh, made a deal with Disney and, and came up with a lot of great experiences, had locations uh, around the world. Uh, I think we had like 20 something locations um, before uh, COVID eventually shut us down. Um, but uh, the experiences were awesome and um, they were, they were all sensory and go in with your friends. And we'd be able to, we'd build all the walls and all the furniture. We, we really, uh, I mean, if it was something that looked like you could touch it, then in the void, you should be able to touch it. You could lean against it. You could sit down on it. You could pick it up and use it. It was a very uh, tactile experience. Um, then we throw in scent and uh, we throw in heat and mist and we uh, had transducers under every floorboard 
uh, in the void so that if there was uh, if there was an explosion or something, then you could feel it radiate from that position. Guess right. so the idea is not just to the idea is not just to use the visual sense of what virtual reality can be, but the overall full call it five six senses of the human experience. And a lot yeah. of that comes from theme park learning, right? From the physicality of a theme park. When you touch it, it's really there. When you see it, it feels like it's really there. When you feel it, gutturally, you feel it. You feel it, you know, with heat and 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 the physical properties, not just the what your eyes can see. Um, which then you define as the term hyper reality, right? That's kind of your. That's yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. The uh, the definition I, I I use for that is the illusion of an impossible reality, so convincing that the mind accepts it as reality itself. And so it doesn't have to be VR. Um, I'm always saying that. Like I've I've been in, in numerous attractions that have felt like hyper reality to me. I've been to uh, Richard Garriott had a haunted house that I went through as a as a teenager that was uh, incredible and uh, definitely was hyper reality. Uh, and then, and it's, uh, so it's that, and that, that's, that's the thing I'm always chasing is that hyper reality and, and what we're always trying to do with the void, you know, theme parks are amazing. I love theme parks. Uh, but there's always that you have to really try and suspend your disbelief in a theme park because it's not just you there. It's hordes of other people around you that are buying churros and wearing Mickey shirts. And, you know, you're, you're trying to be in Diagon Alley, but you're there with a bajillion muggles and in a way is this. Right. There's you know, always things really breaking kind of, the illusion, right? Uh, the, the tourists like, base themselves and the, the Pepsi cart and the tourist stuff that they're selling is always breaking breaking the, the illusion. So your goal is to see how far you can push that away, right? And and make it feel like it's really happening. In our world, because I work for Paramount, we talk about the holodeck, right? Can we really build a real yeah. holodeck where it you lose connection between what's real and what's not real? And, you know, Ronnie, exactly. to, to lead you into this conversation the 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 beginnings of the magic leap journey was that as well right was trying to to break down those barriers of what just sticking screens in front of your eyes could do and build a much more sophisticated limbic system eyes plus uh that could that could sell that illusion more effectively no ted what i what i what i really loved about what curse and the void were doing uh was was like our inspiration point at magic leap i had a notion i called sensory field computing which was light field, sound field, you know, taste, smell, the whole thing. Um, and we were going to do it in sequence, light field and sound field, and then keep going, and then haptics. So I thought like light, sound, haptics, digital touch would be the first three, and then you'd have smell and taste later. I used to joke about the smellorama, but I think sensory field computing is what Curtis was chasing, right? Because then you could fully move someone into a new world utterly. Right. And it's a complete dreamlike state. Yeah. Um, it's not a waking hallucination like augmented reality. You were chasing the the full transport of someone into a kind of a lucid dream. That that's what that's what void um uh, felt to me. And to do that, you were using every trick in the book to stimulate the senses of somebody, right? So that they really believed on every level. And as the technology gets better and better, that magic you were trying to do, which is like I think of a kind of neurologic magic. Uh, you know, really gets more refined. Like if I was thinking about everything you did from 2015 on, if you started it over 2025 to 2035, probably everything you ever dreamed about is now completely achievable. Well, and that may be like this next coming decade is the one where all of the hard work from like, you know, 2010 through let's say now plowed the earth for now getting the resolution, the compute power, all of the things they can, it's like being an early visual effects in film. And today you could do anything, right? Like you can make any, anything you want and it looks perfectly real. I think you'll be able to do that in the real world, you know, 2025 onward. It's sort of like the beginning of that next era. Well, and that dovetails into uh, the, the question du jour is, what is the void doing now as one of the early pioneers in this? You're still involved with it. It has gone through a number of sales entities changeover. So our listeners tend to be pretty sophisticated at this. A lot of them have probably been to versions of the void. I am a legit fan. Uh, Roni is as well. And so is Charlie. We've been to these things many times. I've been to the Star Wars one. I did. You know, I even went to Utah with you and Ken in the early days and saw all your prototype stuff. I'm that I'm that far deep into this. So maybe give us a, a little bit of what you can tell us about the uh, 
the the rebirth of the void and what you're doing right now and where it, what we should be expecting. Rebirth of the rebirth of the cool. Just yeah. have to say that. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, oh gosh. Uh, yeah, the company obviously really hard times when uh, when COVID hit and we had to close all the locations and the timing couldn't have been worse for the void. Um, and just as far as funding cycles and things are concerned, and and uh, you know there was a. You know, we've we've had a number of of change ups and and different CEOs, and there was a lot of uh, uh, I mean, a ton going on behind the scenes. But ultimately, uh, the pandemic uh, was just kind of the thing that really did it in. And um, after that, uh, it was a matter of um, frankly, there's just in previous uh, investors that said, "Hey, uh, we still love this product. We still uh, love what I had to offer. What if we?" Bought the assets back, and uh, what if we um, really tried to um, bring this back from the debt, uh, so to speak, and 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 have people go through these uh, experiences again? And my condition, you know, when they came to me, is if we're going to do it again, I don't want to just do the same thing again. Because why? You know, let's let's take you know everything we've learned and try and move forward from that. So, so what does that mean? Move forward, like uh, so you won't be using any of the experiences, like even the ones that weren't tied to some of the the Disney Star Wars IP and stuff like that. I know those would probably be more difficult to bring back to life through a new entity. But the original IP stuff, I can't remember the the name of it, but there was a a, a haunted house horror attraction that really pushed the boundaries of that physical. Like you actually got into a haunted train that had full haptics. You moved yeah. to a haunted laboratory that was like someone's you know haunted mansion fever dream like how is this so real now it felt completely real because you had the physical embodiment are those things coming back or are you literally starting from ground zero starting fresh with new new ideas and new new concepts new stories so the idea is both which is to say it's it's yeah i'm happy to bring back the old stages i'm happy to bring back the old experiences and i'm happy to even make new experiences on the old stage but i don't want to just if our model is just doing that old stage and trying to literally copy what we did the first time mm-hmm. that doesn't interest me mm-hmm. uh what interests me is is going beyond that going to the infinite stage i've always talked about right the infinite hallway and getting into these super huge worlds and much longer experiences and um so i, I love the idea of of pushing that and exploring that as well as products that are very different from that as well like even some, what if what if what if we did something that was even smaller and we explored that area um but the, i mean the, look the first things we'll bring back are, are what we had only with kind of the more updated technology. Um, and then uh, um, particularly Nicodemus, which is the experience uh, yeah. that they really it. I thought so it was amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, that, that, that's my baby. So that means the world to me. I appreciate that. Uh, I wrote that with my, my father, Tracy. And um, uh, that was, that was right. So awesome. there's a little family, that there's a family business uh, aspect of this. Maybe talk for a minute or two about your dad and how that, how that connection is and how that's so special. Yeah. Uh, I know he's an Tracy author, Hickson. right? And your mom, right? There, you're, yeah, there. That's right. And my mom. Most people don't mention my mom, but she's, she's a, a talented wonder uh, as well. And, uh, Tracy has written, uh, he's a 14 times New York Times bestselling author. Um, most famous for his work yeah, with, uh, especially in the 80s with D&D. Yeah, he wrote, uh, the Dragonland series with Margaret Wise, um, a book called The Death Gate Cycle, and others that did just extremely well. And uh, um, but also wrote a lot of D and D modules. Kind of born into this, things. like you had no choice. This was this right. was predetermined in your world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, I grew up playing these games and uh, sort of imagining all these different worlds and. Um, when when we needed a writer for the void, I, I know I was I knew I was like I was going to go to my partners, uh, Ken Bretschneider and, and James Jensen, and, and tell them like I want to hire my dad, and was super worried that they were going to be like, oh, nepotism yeah. or whatever. But they were okay with no, it. No, they yeah. they were totally okay with it. They knew right away that it was the right call because uh, he's not just a talented writer, but a talented game designer, and he was just the perfect fit. So uh, he wrote um, every void experience. Um, uh, sometimes in combination with other writers from studios and other places, but he was the writer just behind everything we did. So where, so is there a timeline? What should we expect? Like 
what, if anything, is public about when we'll get to see another Void experience? Where would it end up? Is any of that, um, any any kind yeah. of either nuggets you can give to our listeners for the first time or clues or, you know, you like clues and, and journeys and stories. So even if you can't tell us everything, give us give us some direction. Give us some uh, some uh-huh. path we should go down in terms of what, where we'll see, what we'll see next from the Void and when. Um, so the Void's working. There's, there are, there's two new products that the void's working on that go beyond just the standard stage that we'd had. And, uh, one is, uh, you know, we're, we, and, and it's, it's still very much in early development is the infinite stage. Um, but that is, we have a space in our warehouse that's set up at a, in a large look that's just made for that space. And we've done tests on large mazes and things, and there's a lot of development behind that. So that is something we're actively prototyping and working on. Uh, and then there's another product that's very different than things we've done before that I that I can't talk about, but there's your there's your clue. Um, and then as far as when this is all going to come out, when are we able to see and like go through, uh, you know, an experience uh, point again? Uh, nothing has been announced um, other than there's uh, there've been a number of one location and and I lots of thoughts, but there's one. Place I'm particularly excited about that I can't talk about yet. That is, that would be uh, um, uh, ideal as a as a new starting place. So, okay. so this so is another thing to see in the next couple months. You're you're a ways away yet from delivering on these. Still things. a ways away. There's still funding and and things uh, that that they're after. I know that to make sure that all these things happen. And uh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm still on the I still am on the creative side and working on that and letting the powers that be. I work things out on the business can side. You, can you share a little bit that. about, and then I'll, Roni, I'll let you dive into some of your questions. Can you share a little bit about who the new, the new owners are, the new ownership and what their goals sets? And like, I think that's also pretty quiet. Like we don't know a lot about. Uh, there's a group called Hyperreality Partners uh, okay. that is uh, kind of uh, has gotten the assets and are, uh, have been funding the company. And, People we would know, I presume, <laughs> connected or maybe not. Different group. Um, I don't. Maybe I don't. I don't know. Okay. Maybe. I don't know. I guess if they wanted lots to, if they wanted to be known who they were, I guess they would have said. Yeah, that. yeah. Lots of secrets, which is fine. Uh, you know, that's all part yeah. of the entertainment business is, is keep it under the shroud of mystery. Uh, Roni, any other uh, questions or threads you want to pull with Curtis? We probably got. Well, Curtis, I, I guess the it's it's a it's maybe it's a question slash guidance. I think if you're given it another go. I think the most important thing is staying power. Um, just my my sense of the tech. I've been working on it for a long time. Uh, it's good. It's it's really getting very good right now. Uh, you know, things like the Apple Vision Pro are an indicator of where things will be over the next decade. But you have to make it. I think into the mid twenty thirties. Like I, I, you, you, you have to pace. This is like long cycles, right? Like you know. Uh, Pixar did one film and and faded out. It wouldn't have happened. You have to have that staying power so that like, um, you know, you know, I don't even know if we're at the Toy Story moment yet. Yeah. In, in terms of like where this really is, like, you know, um, think about like where we will be in 2030 if you've played with something like a Magic Leap Two, the Apple Vision Pro, where that is in five years, and then what that is another five years after that. If people keep up on pace every 24 months. CPU vision improving sensors weight power thermo there's I think there's a sweet spot where it all actually comes together really beautifully and I guess my only guidance is like try to figure out a way to have like the long range you know like jet propulsion lab not going to the moon uh, I, I think I think the 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 guidance for anyone in XR is you are a JPL mission to a distant planet um, you need to have really long fuel don't burn it all out like Saturn V trying to get to the moon because the targets are farther away than people realize. I love that, would, that. that would be I my guidance. Yeah, I think that's really good. I think, I think, and I've always thought this that the VR and AR XR in general is that there's there's a threshold, and people are like, oh, why why isn't there more take up on this? It's like I just don't think we've crossed that threshold yet of visual fidelity and uh, field of view and like there's just like there's all these points that that people are like oh we're doing really good and it's like no no we're like not close to where i think people would expect uh and and we'll get there but and there'll be a once we cross that particular threshold i feel like it, it, it's, there's all of a sudden it becomes this amazing thing but 
we got to get over that uh, across that chasm or over that threshold. And I, 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 I Curtis, I had a, sorry. I had this thing called the wind circuit, W I N circuit. Imagine a circuit mm. board with dozens of parameters that all have to go green. Right. And I've been refining that and refining that. So I, I can't really talk about that here on the show, but I'll just give you the, the qualitative thing. People mistake like, Oh, I now have 4k resolution. Okay. That's one of like 35, 40 things that all have to go green at the exact same time. Yeah, um, And when they go green at the exact same time, you have liftoff. And I think what we have right now are people who've got 18 of them, 20 of them, 24, and like maybe good enough for a subcategory of people for certain sectors. And you're tasting what that future looks like. But I think for the masses to go all in, um, a, a number of these things have to have to hit together. And, and why is that? This is different from any other kind of computing, because every day you wake up, and the reality of the real world is screaming at you. It's perfect. It's great. And we are always compared to that. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really far away. And like there's a certain tolerance we have to distance from that. But the, when you're too far away in some areas, like vestibular system in the brain not being happy with how like 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 certain motion sensors like try to put an image into your eye, you want to puke. Um, and if you don't just nail it, you're going to puke. Um, and it makes people nauseous and the people who are okay with it is a subset of people who just don't get nauseous because something's broken in their neurologic <laughs> system. They, they can eat like yeah. a pizza and go on a roller coaster all day long and they should be in the Navy, but normal human beings just feel ill uh, and you can't overlook that. Right. And, and people felt ill with the Apple vision pro you were reading after 20, 25 minutes because Apple can't bypass that. The human body does not let you bypass it. There's no cheat code on it. Um, and I think what, what has to happen is get all those things right. Probably the first thing you guys should do is map all of that against time and when they really go green. And then if they're not all green, like we are today, like I think you were very clever in figuring out how much can you tolerate and what would be good in what limited amount of time and what kind of experience. You know, that's like Pixar uh, with like not doing fur, right, in the early things, not trying to do people. They were very clever in hiding the limitations. And I think you can do that in a location-based experience. That's what's brilliant about the void. You can hide the things that are not perfect. Um, and every year uh, going forward till the 2030s, unlock more and more as we get better and better. That's the advantage of what you're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. That goes into a lot of the magic where we, we use misdirections and misnomer. Right. It's people are like, oh, he made me look over there, but then the real thing happened over here. And it's like, no, no, no. Misdirection is about directing people toward the effect and away from the method. And uh, if your method is hiding the weaknesses that uh, the, current, uh, the current state of VR, uh, then what you need to do is create effects that emphasize its strengths. And so that's what we would often do in the void is emphasize, emphasize the things about the physical environment and the place that you're in uh, and de-emphasize the things that, uh, you know, that aren't great for the experience in order to heighten, uh, heighten the overall adventure. So, so here's a couple of things to touch on as we wrap up. Uh, the first thing I'll do is I'll, I'll mention a, a piece of inspiration that I think certainly using virtual reality tied to a haptic experience. I saw the first in the void was in one of your prototype experiences. And I think you brought it back to another, a, a couple of things is uh, at one point you went through a, a a web a spider web a, a bunch of spider yeah. webs and you use the most simple magic trickery you know as you know as a, as a magician illusions are often the most simple solution to the most complex problem that it's just hard for your brain to process how simple it was and that's why the magic works right you could probably talk about that forever uh, but as you move through this visual of spider webs you felt them and all it was was a whole bunch of strings hanging from the ceiling that you moved through right that was amazing and still lives in a part of my brain that i thought that was incredible how well it was executed when i and that was in the prototype world when i saw the full deliverable of that it takes us to a place of an experience that is still one of the high watermarks of out of the home theme park level virtual reality, which was the Ghostbusters experience, which ran in Times Square and a couple of other places around the world. And maybe you want to talk a little bit about that in terms of what you achieved back then and how far you can go. Because talk about full haptic experience. You know, you were up on this ledge, you had massive wind and all this lightning feeling and all this stuff. And it was an incredible piece of storytelling. Um, so I'll stop there, let you talk about those. And then I want to wrap up by talking a little about your book and why people should read your book and, 
what's going through. That'll kind of give us our, our, we'll put a bow on it that way before we all head off into our world this morning. Awesome. Sounds good. Uh, that first Ghostbusters experience, the one that we opened up in Madame Tussauds, is, is still one of my favorites. Um, uh, because that was a dedicated set, like a dedicated stage. Uh, in the void, we'd have, we have our stages, but we have them, they're configurable, that we can actually change out right, they were modular, the, right? different props and elements. Uh, but in the, uh, at the Madame Tussauds location, it was just all for Ghostbusters, uh, which meant that in the first room you walk in, there was a sink in the corner, an actual like sink. There was, there was brick texture on the wall. There was an air conditioner in the side. There was a chair in the room, a television. Like it was like, we built everything, uh, exactly according to the, uh, uh, the environment and, so when you went in, you could touch every single surface, and uh, and it was just very real. Um, then when you were out on the balcony, we had built a uh, a swaying. It was on it was on skateboard wheels uh, that was on two rails, and it was a, a swaying bridge that you would cross. And, yeah, it felt and totally real. That is that is the closest to the holodeck I think I've ever gotten. You really felt like you were on that bridge, on that ledge, looking over, looking at the city, and then the giant Stay Puff Marshmallow Man would come in, and it was like, what is going on here? This is oh, the man, future yeah, of these books, right? That yeah, was it was one. that. That was awesome. I, I I love that moment because you get those fans blowing right, and the drop is so much. You get that that a leaf system, that that inner lizard brain saying, "Well, you're really high up," and so all of those things came together to make just an incredible moment. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that that Manchester's location was was great, and then of course ending with the, uh, the the smell of burning marshmallow at the end was just kind of the cherry on top that that really sold. So do you think we get even further than that in the next five years? Obviously, that's what you're working towards, right? Is there something? Because yeah. it was pretty incredible. Uh, you know, I mean, given the fact that the headsets were heavy and clunky and had the backpacks, and maybe the resolution wasn't. Uh, certainly not at where uh, you know the, the current OLEDs are in terms of delivery. You're still pixelated a little bit. But are we going to get to a point where something like that will go into it and will completely lose our sense of reality, real reality, which maybe leads into your maybe a, a minute or two about what you wrote about in your book? Yeah, I wrote the book um, because I was it was I was starting during the pandemic, not knowing what was going to happen as far as the void was concerned, and and. Um, it ended up being uh, over 400 pages and um, just everything I'd learned about hyperreality design and story design and uh, especially combining magic and virtual reality and, and the crazy things you can do um, in a hyperreality environment. So I, I put that book together because I, was, I, I, I didn't want everything I'd learned as far as the medium goes to like die or disappear. Like if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, what would happen? You know, and uh, I guess I got very... Uh, don't get hit by a bus know. by the way we need your I will, I'll try not to get hit by a bus thank you <laughs> I appreciate it um, but it got a little existential there I guess during the pandemic and, and so I just wanted to write a book about it I got permission from all the all the everyone that I needed to, to that I could and, and put the book together and it uh, I'm, I'm very proud of it It's I, I wrote it in a way that uh, had a lot of examples and a lot of theory and a lot of uh, practical like here is what you can do uh, things because I, I I don't like reading books that are just theory. I don't like reading books that are just example. I want to wait. I want ways to put everything together so that by the time I'm done reading a book, I can say, okay, well, now I have a way to use it. Right. I think um, it's going to be a bible for anyone in XR LBX. You know, like uh, the illusion of life. You know, by the Disney animators, everyone reads that. So if you you know you now you need now you need your book in addition to that one if you're going to go into the next spatial spatial design LBX. A great book. Yeah, I, I, I tell everyone, my friends, to get it. So the book you. is called Hyper Reality. Where can they find it? How can they find and learn more about you? Web resources. Give the listeners just a little, like, okay, I'm really curious about Curtis. That was a really interesting interview. How do I learn more? Let's wrap up that way, and then we'll move on with our days, our days in reality, uh, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let me say two things about that. Uh, well, first of all, the most important thing, if you really want the book, it's called, it is called Hyperreality. Uh, the subtitle is The Art of Designing Impossible Experiences. And you can find it on Amazon. Um, so please, uh, please check that out. Um, uh, as far as me, uh, just keep a lookout. Uh, we're still working to try to bring the void back. Uh, you know, I'm, I also, I sometimes do consulting. I, I, uh, I work and, uh, uh, I'm still trying to push the vision of, of hyperreality forward and make these uh, sort of insane experiences um, uh, come to life. Uh, so I, I, that's still my my passion is is still doing that. 
Um, I think that if uh, I, I do want to look at the future just for a, a quick moment here, maybe at the end, because as, as we look forward and we look at the new technology that comes out, we look forward and all these uh, and all these we check all these boxes and try to make everything light up and green and, 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 and get past that threshold. There is a future where uh, we have the holodeck and yeah, maybe it is augmented like the void was, but people are running and climbing and uh, jumping from pillar to pillar across a canyon and, and fighting giant monsters and interacting with dialogue with, with, creatures and people in these impossible places in worlds and they're spending hours at a time doing it and uh, and in these realities that seem completely real uh, as if they were lucid dreaming as if they were living in a dream and i uh i can't wait for that reality and i'm still fighting for it so that's what that's what i'm going to keep doing that's good that's a good inspirational way to wrap things up roni any any parting thoughts for today before i close this out no, no, just just fight the good fight. I think everything you were doing was actually correct, just at an earlier stage in the market and tech development. So if you stay on that same path, it's just about having the endurance to, uh, to go the distance. I think, I think every, I think you will see everything you worked on coming to life in the next decade in many ways, and hopefully you get to be the one doing it at the top. Awesome. Thank you. So, Curtis, thanks for joining. Great conversation. Super interesting. Uh, thanks to all of our listeners for listening to this week's episode of This Week in XR. Thanks to our illustrious sponsor, Zapper, uh, that keeps us alive every week and allows us to do this as a labor of love. Uh, and thanks to all the listeners, which keep growing uh, week over week in the many thousands now. So people seem to like this format, like the kind of deep dive, like the kind of guests that we're getting. Uh, and Charlie, we miss you and uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, Charlie will be back uh, leading the charge with us. Uh, I will be on the road next week. Uh, so we'll hopefully be calling in from a remote location from a hotel like you did this week, Curtis. Every week is, yeah. is different. We all deal with our technology in, in different ways, but we manage it most of the time. Um, it was a great show and uh, we look forward to seeing everybody next week, same time. Uh, listen in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. That's where you find This Week in XR. And uh, thanks for tuning in. 